<clears throat> Do you remember where you were on July 8th, 2010? What's so special about this date from almost exactly eight years ago? Any guesses? On July 8th, or no guesses, I guess. On July 8th, 2010, America flipped on their televisions to discover where a 25-year-old would choose to work. Now, there was far more pop and circumstance than that, because this wasn't just any 25-year-old, and it wasn't just any line of work. This was professional basketball player LeBron James, a once-in-a-generation kind of talent who had already played in the NBA, the National Basketball Association, for seven seasons. Now, you're probably aware that LeBron spent his first seven seasons here in Cleveland. The Cavaliers struck gold in landing the number one pick in 2003 so that they could draft LeBron, the high school prodigy native to Akron, Ohio. With LeBron, the Cavs soared to new heights, consistently making the playoffs, making it to the championship once, but, that, but winning it all, winning that championship seemed elusive. So in the summer of 2010, LeBron's contract with the Cavs was up. It was over. And now he had to answer that question posed by The Clash, the band. Should I stay or should I go? <laughs> After making up his mind, LeBron went public with his choice on a TV special dubbed the Decision, which aired on ESPN July 8, 2010. Thirteen million people tuned in to what was an overall strange event. It was partly a charity fundraiser. It actually raised two and a half million dollars for a boys and girls club. It was partly sort of an awkward interview. And it was partly what it looked like, honestly, an ego trip. But to be fair, the whole thing actually wasn't LeBron's idea. It was rather the journalist who interviewed him, Jim Gray. So, to be fair. The Decision was a TV special that was 75 minutes long, and the actual decision part didn't come until 30 minutes in. Do you remember where you were? Because I do. <laughs> Having just finished a baseball tournament, I was in a Damon's restaurant. Uh, which is a sports bar, um, just north of Columbus with my teammates, and we were clinging to the edge of our worn-down booth seats, waiting for LeBron's answer to the question, LeBron, what's your decision? And many still remember his words. In the fall, I'm taking my talents to South Beach and going to join the Miami Heat. And chaos ensued. We all screamed in the restaurant, and deranged Cleveland fans up here burned LeBron jerseys in effigy. And I remember myself, I remember stuffing all of my LeBron memorabilia in the corner of my closet. Couldn't quite bring myself to crush it all and get rid of it all. The decision was over. Now, maybe you read the title of this sermon, What is Baptism? And now you're wondering, what on earth does this have to do with baptism? Well, for starters, onlookers of the decision took away many different things from it. Everyone had an opinion on it, 
and some were different than others. So as we'll see, the baptism is kind of like the decision in that way. It's a polarizing subject with no shortage of opinions. What's more, though, at least in our circles, like evangelical, baptistic churches, Christians often view baptism as a one-dimensional event, kind of like the decision. It's getting immersed into water is all about an individual's public declaration that he or she has decided to follow Jesus. And that's not inaccurate. In fact, that's true. But think about, think about it. LeBron had already decided where he would want to play, and the decision was the form he chose to make that decision known publicly. So baptism is the form Jesus has ordained for his followers to make known publicly that they believe in him. That's a crucial part of its meaning. But when thinking about the question, what is baptism? We find that there are even more components than that. It's multidimensional, not just one-dimensional. So the main point for our time together is that baptism is rich in meaning and is an act both of individual believers and local churches. Baptism is rich in meaning and an act both of individual believers and local churches. So we'll answer the question of the title of this sermon, What is Baptism? We'll do that in four parts. First, we're going to consider some biblical data. What does the Bible have to say about this? How do we get to baptism in the whole story of the Bible? We'll cover that. Second, we'll offer a definition of baptism based on that data. Third, like when we defined a local church, we'll notice what's not in that definition. Kind of some misunderstandings people have about baptism. Like we said, there are no shortage of opinions. And finally, we'll close by breaking down what is in that definition. Notice all the different components of it. So friends, this is a study of doctrine, a study of theology. And like any study, it can leave us just with more head knowledge. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it can't be the only thing. True study, good study of any doctrine should always lead to doxology. It should always lead to praise to God. So my prayer is that when we consider baptism, yes, we will learn what the Lord has for us, but also that we will praise for what the Lord has done for us that baptism shows. All right, so this is the third installment of our current sermon series, Questions About the Local Church. You may have been here for all of them. You may have been here for none of them. Either way, I think it'll be helpful for us to briefly run down where we've been. So week one, we remember that we sought to rediscover the preciousness of the church as the body of people that was purchased by Christ himself. And we sought to define what a local church is. I read that definition last week. I'm going to read it again this week. A group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. Think of this week as an expansion of gospel ordinances. It's the first ordinance is baptism, then the Lord's Supper. Last week, in the second part of our sermon series, we investigated where we get that definition from. 
namely the Bible. And we showed the role that the Bible plays in a local church, that it's, it's authority. It informs what we preach, how we worship, how we live. It is the basis for us, God's word. This week, we want to examine baptism, one of the ordinances of Jesus, and see how it gives shape to a local church. So since God's word is our authority, we're going to begin by turning to different places in the Bible that discuss baptism. Okay, so think of this as more of a general survey of the biblical data. I don't know if you've taken survey classes before, maybe American History 101 or English 101, but survey classes are meant more, of a, more as an introduction, an introduction to the most essential components of the subject. Not studying in depth, but kind of giving a skim. So think of this as Baptism 101 from the Bible. So it might be difficult if we start in a place like the Old Testament. We highlight different parts throughout the Bible. If we start in a place like the Old Testament, how do we get baptism from the Old Testament? Where do we go? Well, a helpful place to begin is the covenants presented in the Old Testament. We've talked some about the covenants during our time in Genesis. A covenant, we remind ourselves, is a relationship that's not built on natural bonds, like family. A covenant is involving at least two parties where one or both of the parties choose to make a solemn commitment, promising to fulfill certain obligations and sealing that promise with an oath. So the common example is marriage. Promise to make certain commitments in marriage, you seal that promise with an oath. So we see God making covenants with people like Adam and Eve, like Noah, like Abraham, like the nation of Israel through Moses, like King David. And eventually at the end of all that, he promises to make a new covenant. So we could say a lot about each one of these, but for now it's enough to know that there's a natural flow through all the covenants that God makes with his people. And that now Christ has ushered in that new covenant people were waiting for in the Old Testament. So each one of those covenants progresses the grand narrative of how God is bringing his people back to himself, of how God is restoring Eden. So under the Old Covenants, God marked off his people in a certain way. He marked off his people as a distinct ethnicity, and he gave them a couple of things to make this visible, to make this evident. So turn, to, turn for example, to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. You'll find it on page 12. And this is God speaking to Abraham. And we're noticing how God makes his people visible. In here, God gave Abraham the sign of circumcision, the removing of the foreskin of the male reproductive part. And one of the things that circumcision served to do was to identify God's people who were distinct from the world around them. 
So we see this in Genesis chapter 17, verses 9 to 11. You can just skim that briefly. God gave circumcision to make his people distinct. But God would give his people other things to make them distinct. You think of God's covenant with Israel, given through Moses. He gave them his law to make them distinct from the world around them. So he gave them circumcision, gave them the law. You see God's purpose for his people in Exodus chapter 19, which you find on page 60. Exodus chapter 19. The special role of Israel in God's plan. Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. A kingdom of priests so that the world could see what God is like. God's marking off his people from the world. But you know, the thing about the old covenants is that just because they had these outward signs didn't mean they had the inward reality. So for circumcision, just because they were circumcisioned didn't mean that their hearts were circumcised, didn't mean that they were devoted to God in their hearts. Just because they had the law didn't mean they kept the law. In fact, this proved to be a huge problem, a huge reoccurring problem. They kept on sinning. They kept on disobeying. This is why God said something like we read earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 10. He told them, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. So what was needed, what was needed that the old covenants didn't provide was a heart transplant. A heart transplant. And that's what God promised in the new covenant. We read of that in a place like Jeremiah 31. You can find that on page 659. Jeremiah chapter 31. God promising a new heart. You notice in verse 33 of Jeremiah 31 that in this new covenant, God will write his law on the hearts of his people. And in the next verse, verse 34, we see that all of God's people know God in this new community. Every member of the new covenant knows God. No longer will there be people in the covenant who didn't keep the covenant. So, friends, we see that God forms his new covenant people, not through physical birth and an outward marking. God forms his new covenant people by giving them new birth. And this is what Christ has brought. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, says that Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. And having purchased its benefits through his death and resurrection, God has poured out his spirit on those who enter that new covenant through faith in Christ. So believe it or not, this has something to do with baptism. 
to understand baptism, we must understand that it is a sign of the new covenant, like the rainbow with Noah, like the circumcision with Abraham. So knowing how the Old Testament sets up baptism, we can make better sense of what the New Testament says about baptism. So for example, we can turn to Mark chapter 1, page 837 in the Pew Bible. And in Mark chapter 1 and other places, we can see what we do see, John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. And we see here that Jesus' baptism is a promise of things to come. Look at Mark chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. And John the Baptist knows that the people needed something more than just immersion in water. In fact, immersion, that, that, just a side note, you look at verse 10, and it says Jesus came out of the water. It's hard to do that if you're sprinkled. Anyway, um, they knew, John the Baptist knew that people needed new hearts and that this is what Jesus would bring. So Jesus' baptism was an anticipation. It anticipated his death through which he would bring the blessings of the new covenant. Paying for the sins of his people. Purchasing for them new hearts wrought by the Holy Spirit. So we go further in the New Testament after Jesus gets baptized. And we see baptism is a part of the Great Commission. Matthew 28, page 835. If you want to go there, just flip back one page from Mark 1. It's part of the Great Commission. And the Great Commission begins in verse 19. Here, Jesus is charging his disciples, not just his first ones, but all of them. He charges them what they are to do. In other words, he gives them a mission. His disciples are to make more disciples. And what is the sign of being a disciple that Jesus gives? It's baptism. And he authorizes his disciples to do that. He authorizes his church to do that. More on that in a little bit. So then baptism is the initiation rite for entrance into the new covenant, into the new covenant people of God. It shows that one has become a member of the new community and that one now belongs to the triune God. It says baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we see baptism here. We can go from Matthew, though, to the book of Acts. See how the early church practiced baptism. And there is a ton we can dive into. But we'll notice just a couple of passages. So turn, for example, to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. You'll find it on page 925. In Acts chapter 16, we see an example of baptism. In verse 30, there is a jailer in the city of Philippi, and he asks Paul and Silas a very important question. What must I do to be saved? And Paul responds, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Their reply in verse 31, that's what they do. And what happens after they believe? Verse 32, he's baptized. And side note, it mentions that his whole household was baptized. This must also mean that his whole household also believed. 
Again, more on that a little bit later. But we can see all over Acts that the pattern is baptizing people after they believe in Jesus. It's similar to what happens with the Samaritan believers in Acts chapter 8. We can look earlier in Acts chapter 16 and we see Lydia believes and is then baptized. We see chapter 18 for Corinthian believers that they believe and then they are baptized. And we'll go back to Acts later to look for misunderstandings about some of that pattern. So when searching through the Bible, sorting through all the data, look through the Old Testament, look through some of the New Testament, we can also go to the letters of the New Testament, also known as the epistles. And earlier we read two different passages, two important passages, Romans 6, Colossians 2. These passages show that baptism portrays a believer's union with Christ. So if you read the book of Romans up to chapter 6, we find that we are united to Christ how? Through faith. Through faith and faith alone. So then baptism displays that wonderful reality of union with Christ, of what that means for us. It means that his victories become our victories. His death, our death to sin. His resurrection becomes our new life and seals the hope for our future physical resurrection. And immersion portrays this, doesn't it? Buried with him in death, risen with him in in his likeness. In Colossians 2, Paul says that baptism displays that circumcision of the heart that we have been longing for, that the, Old Co- that the Old Testament promised in place like Jeremiah 31. So all this biblical data about baptism, and just a couple more verses will suffice. You turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, page 955. 1 Corinthians 6. Just a short verse. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. And such were some of you. Which, by the way, is an unbelievably important reminder. Such were some of you. But you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. A verse similar, Titus chapter 3, verses 5 to 6. You find it on 999, Titus chapter 3. God, our Savior, saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. What do these verses teach us about baptism? Well, they teach us that by virtue of Christ's work, believers are holy and believers are cleansed on the basis of Christ's work. Baptism testifies of that. Baptism portrays that cleansing. It doesn't cleanse itself. No, Jesus cleansed. Baptism portrays that great reality. 
So we find in the letters of the New Testament that baptism finally shows our unity with Christ's people. One faith, one Lord, one baptism. Ephesians 4, 5. For in the Spirit you were baptized into one body. 1 Corinthians 12. So all believers in Christ enter the new covenant people of God the same way. Faith in him. And baptism expresses that. Baptism shows that. It communicates the people to whom we now belong. So we have a bunch of data. And if we plug all this data into an equation, in order to come up with a definition, what's going to be the answer? Well, there are lots of sample definitions. Here's one from a well-known statement of faith. Kind of wordy, so bear with me. Baptism is an ordinance of the Lord Jesus Christ, obligatory upon every believer, wherein he or she is baptized in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is to be done by immersion to show forth in a solemn and beautiful emblem our faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior, in our death to sin, and resurrection to a new life. This is what it shows. Its its only proper subjects are those who do actually profess repentance towards God and faith in and obedience to the Lord Jesus. That's fully loaded. So here's a more streamlined definition from another author, uh, Bobby Jameson. You can find it printed in your bulletin. Baptism is a church's act of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ by immersing him or her in water, and a believer's act of publicly committing him or herself to Christ and his people, thereby uniting a believer to the church and marking off him or her from the world. So in this baptism, we see several different moving parts. See something about the baptizee i.e. the person being baptized, and who he or she is, what he or she is declaring in baptism. We see something about how a person is baptized, the mode, namely immersion. And we see something about the baptizer, the one who is baptizing, who it is, what it is declaring by baptizing the baptizee. Those are the components of the definition. Now we're just going to stick that in the oven and let it cook for a few minutes, and we're going to go away and do something else, like I like to do when I cook. So, we need to recognize what's not in this definition, because there are plenty of misunderstandings about baptism. Like we said, no shortage of opinions. So just to preface this, when we present views we disagree with, we should do so in a way that is charitable and that is accurate. When presenting any view you disagree with, we should always assume good intentions unless we are proven otherwise. What's more is that we should never portray a caricature, but present their view as as they would recognize it. And this isn't just true for doctrine and theology, it's true for other areas need to be charitable, need to be accurate. And again, though, each one of these misunderstandings, you can 
study even more. So it's just kind of an introduction, okay? But I hope, I hope it's an accurate and charitable introduction at that. So what's not in this definition? What's not here? What are some misunderstandings? From this definition, we see that baptism is not salvific. Baptism is not salvific. This means that there's nothing about the physical act of baptism that produces faith in the individual, nor it does the physical act of baptism save the individual. This goes against a sacramental view of baptism as believed by the Roman Catholic Church. For Catholics, baptism is a part of their larger view of the sacraments, which they believe are means of grace that are infused or instilled into their recipients. And when that happens, when those means of grace are infused or instilled, it transforms the recipient's nature and it enables them to merit eternal life so that they can cooperate with God for their salvation. Now, that alone we can dissect big time. Um, but we'll continue. They believe sacraments work ex opere operato. In other words, it works just by doing it. Doesn't require faith from the recipient. The faith comes from the Catholic Church as a whole. So then baptism for Roman Catholics is a sacrament that infuses grace to the individual. And that grace cleanses the baptized from original sin. It regenerates the baptized, it, and it incorporates them into the Catholic Church. That's the view. But baptism being salvific is also professed by some who are lumped into Protestant churches, and this would be baptismal regeneration. It's held by churches and denominations such as Disciples of Christ, Christian Church, and the Church of Christ. They hold that an individual is saved when they are physically baptized, that the physical act actually accomplishes something. And support for both of these views, sacramental and uh, baptismal regeneration, it comes, comes from verses like 1 Peter 3, 21. You can go ahead and turn there. It's page 1016. 1 Peter 3, verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh-oh. Baptism now saves you? This mechanical act, that saves you? It's pretty blatant, isn't it? It's right there. Well, let's look a little bit closer. It's not blatant when you consider the mountain of verses that emphasize that it is faith in Christ's work that saves us. And what's more, when you look a little bit closer, it's not that shocking to, say, to give baptism this amount of credit because everyone who believed in the early church was baptized. Like, there weren't people who weren't. But we look at the verse closer again, and we see that baptism is effective only when it is accompanied by an appeal or pledge to God. 
as part of verse 21, verse 1 Peter. So what does that mean? That means without the decision of the believer, baptism is meaningless. It doesn't rescue us from God's wrath. You can see even in 1 Peter 3, 18, that it is Christ's death that brings us to God, and baptism testifies of that saving work. The physical act alone is not mechanical. It does not save us. It is faith in Christ's work. Ah, we're still away from the oven just for a little bit longer. There are other misunderstandings. There are some who would separate water baptism from baptism with the Holy Spirit, calling baptism of the Holy Spirit a second blessing of Christianity. Now, baptism is closely associated with receiving the Holy Spirit. See this all over the book of Acts. But what we find in the Bible, all that biblical data, neither the book of Acts nor the rest of the New Testament, know of any believer in Jesus who does not have the Holy Spirit. Every believer in Jesus has the Holy Spirit. And any time the gift of the Holy Spirit was delayed, for example, Acts chapter 8 for Christians in Samaria, any time the Holy Spirit was delayed, it was a unique event, unrepeatable. It was usually for the unity of the church. So for Samaria, Samaritans and Jews did not like one another. So the Holy Spirit was delayed so the apostles could witness that these Samaritans were, in fact, a part of the church. That was its purpose. It's not normative. All right, still away from the oven. Cooking the time's almost done. Highlight one last misunderstanding about baptism, which is covenantal infant baptism. It's, this is different from the Roman Catholic Church and their practice of infant baptism. Covenantal infant baptism does not believe that the baptism of infants is salvific in any way. Rather, they believe the children of Christian parents are members of the New Covenant community. They appeal to passages and acts like the household baptism. They appeal to when Jesus says, let the little children come to me. Now, the problems are is that there is no indication that any person was baptized in those households who do not believe. There's also the problem that Jesus is not referring to baptism when he says that. But they have other grounds for appeal. They say that baptism is a replacement of circumcision. Whole big argument to make there. There's a lot we can interact with. But perhaps just bottom line, it's a misunderstanding of the newness of the new covenant. Every member in the new covenant knows God. That's what was promised. Every member of the new covenant has the Holy Spirit. So the only members of the new covenant are those who are united to Christ by faith. That's it. And infants can't do that. So baptism correlates better, not to physical circumcision, but to that new heart circumcision that was promised. That's what Colossians 2 says. Okay, cooking time's done. We've let the definition cook in the oven for a little bit. Now we can pull it out, take a little taste test, and see what we can find. Think of it like a rich baked dessert, like a Hello Dolly. Have you had a Hello Dolly before? Hello Dollies are good. 
bunch of different ingredients in Hello Dolly. So, you know, graham cracker, chocolate, coconut, uh, pecans, and a whole bunch of other goodness make for one cohesive, yummy dessert. So we take a bite into this dessert, and what is something we taste? Well, we taste something about the baptizee, the person being baptized. Who is the baptizee? He or she, quite simply, as we've been defending, is a believer in Jesus Christ. We've been through the biblical data. Jesus commissioned his church to baptize those who repent and believe in him. And the only clear subjects of baptism in the book of Acts are individuals who have repented from their sins and believed in the Lord Jesus. That's the pattern. We read the New Testament letters, and we find the symbolism of union with Christ associated with baptism doesn't make any sense for a person who does not believe. Just doesn't. Believers in Jesus are those who are to be baptized. Now, what is the believer saying when he or she decides to get baptized? What's its purpose? Well, by being baptized, the believer in Jesus testifies of invisible realities that are true about him or her. These great realities that Christ has won. The believer confesses that she is a sinner, but that she believes in Christ to pay the punishment for her sin, that she believes in Christ for a new life, both spiritual and physical. The believer testifies of these great realities. And by being baptized, a believer commits to follow Jesus. So friends, baptism isn't necessary for salvation. Nothing magical about it. Think of the thief of the cross who, who didn't have an opportunity to get baptized, but was promised paradise. While it isn't necessary for salvation, it is necessary for obedience. You think back to Matthew 28. Jesus' great commission. He says, by being baptized, a believer is saying that she submits to Christ's authority. Signs on the dotted line. Promises to seek to obey all his commands. Going on record. Going public in doing this. It's LeBron's decision, only it's baptism. That's the form Jesus has given to us to make our faith known publicly. But we show our commitment not just to Christ when we get baptized. Show our commitment to something else. To Christ's people. You can't separate those two. Remember that Christ has not only re reconciled us to God, but also to God's people. This afternoon, read Ephesians 2. Notice that reality. Verses 1 to, 1 to 11, Paul explains how Christ has reconciled us to God. Verses 11 to 22, he tells us how we have been reconciled to God's people. It's a wonderful thing that Christ has bought us. It's a package deal. You can notice this in Acts chapter 2. You can flip to page 911 if you like. Day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. You talk about major revival. 3,000 people get saved in one day after one sermon. Jesus, try not letting that go to your head. Acts chapter 2, verse 31. says that those who received his word were baptized. And then what? And they were added to that day about 3,000 souls. Added. To what were they added? 
They were added to the church in Jerusalem. One author gives this insight. If someone told the apostles in Jerusalem at Pentecost that they wanted to be baptized but didn't want to join the church in Jerusalem just yet, the apostles would have sent them packing. It's a package deal. So think of baptism as putting on the Team Jesus jersey. And Team Jesus is the church. By putting on the jersey, you commit to playing on the team. You commit to being a member of that church. So you can't be with Jesus and not with his people. And the local church is where we live out the commitment we make in baptism. So, friend, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Have you turned from living your own way and have casted all your hope on Jesus to forgive your sin and give you a righteous standing before God? Has that decision produced change in your life? A new heart? Well, if the answer is yes, Jesus calls you to be baptized. He doesn't want any secret followers. He says, whoever denies me, I will deny before the Father. So to be a Christian is to be open about it. And we don't have to come up with some creative way to do that, to be open about it. Jesus has told us how. He says, get baptized. Baptism is meant to be public. And our faith isn't meant to be kept private. Because it'll get weaker when it stays that way. It's like our bodies. Our bodies need exercise. So think of confessing your faith as strengthening your faith. All right. Going to take a couple more bites of this dessert. See what else we taste. We take another bite. We also taste something of how a person is to be baptized. Namely, it is to be done by immersion. A couple arguments for this. Most straightforward meaning of the word baptizo in the Greek New Testament is to dip, immerse, or plunge. The baptisms described in the New Testament, we find language of people going into the water, coming out of the water. When people want to get baptized, they need to find bodies of water. Which, if you think about it, if it was just for sprinkling, you wouldn't need to do that. And what I think a stronger argument, though, is that immersion displays the meaning of baptism so effectively. It physically mimics our burial and resurrection with Christ. It's a dramatization of that. So that was a small bite. Take one more bite. Still taste something else. We taste something of the baptizer, the one performing the baptism. So think about it. You don't baptize yourself. At least I hope you didn't. <laughs> there are always two parties involved. So who is the party meant to baptize? Can it just be anybody? Hey, it's the summer. It's hot. You may go, next time you go to the pool, you may go with your friend and say, hey, friend, can you baptize me? Don't do that. We need to see who Jesus gives authority to do this. Start in places like Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, page 822. Here, Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom to the apostles, and then he gives them to local churches, the groups who gather in his name. And the keys of the kingdom are for binding and loosing on earth what's been bound and loosed in heaven. In other words, this means 
that the apostles and gathered churches both have authority to make a public declaration or verdict on Jesus' behalf. So they can be like a judge. A judge doesn't make a defendant innocent or guilty. A judge looks at the, at the law, looks at the evidence, and then declares a verdict. That's the kind of authority Jesus gives to gathered people in his name, local churches. So we have to understand that in order to understand Jesus' command to baptize believers. He's given authority to local churches to do that. So then baptism, in baptism, it, the baptizee is not just saying something publicly. The baptizer is also saying something. The one baptizing is using the authority given to it by Jesus. And the local church says, when they baptize, we are affirming something about this person. By baptizing someone, a church says, as far as we can tell, you are one of us. You have professed to believe in Jesus. So to keep that jersey analogy, when baptizing someone, a church adds them to the team roster and gives them a jersey to wear. And that jersey makes it clear who is on Team Jesus. And think of that jersey, too, kind of as a passport. If you go to a different local church, you already have the passport. You already have that jersey. So a local church has been given authority to do this. Just to close, if that's the case, a local church given authority to baptize believers, then we should want to do this well. We should want to take care of this responsibility well. And to do that, we must make sure, at least to the best of our ability, that candidates for baptism understand the gospel and understand what they are getting into by doing this. So when 3,000 people, day of Pentecost, super revival, beginning of the church, 3,000 people baptized, added to the church, it was pretty clear what you were getting into. Because people back then did not like Christians, as is the case in a lot of places around the world. They knew they were signing up for a new life among the followers of the Messiah who were regularly persecuted for their faith. Today, in our climate, things aren't so clear about what, what we're getting into. So before getting baptized, people need to understand what it means to follow Jesus as Lord and to commit to his church. And by committing to his church, you are signing up for the responsibilities that it takes to belong to a church. It's saying that you are willing to be held accountable by God's people if you ever live unrepentingly in a way that is contrary to what you are professing in your baptism. You're saying you are, you are willing to be held accountable like that. God forbid. So in our context today, Doing this well, making sure we have good candidates for baptism, especially applies to children. While God can absolutely save kids, it can be difficult for a church to affirm the credibility of a child's faith in Jesus just because it's natural and good for them to want to obey their parents, to want to please their parents. And it's a huge trend in American Christianity 
that churches affirm the conversion of a young person while later that conversion proves to be false. So then that person can look back on their baptism and get false assurance, which we don't want to give. And it weakens the church's overall witness. It weakens what the power of the gospel should be. So this is, don't get me wrong what I'm saying. A young person's faith should be encouraged. It should be guided. Don't want to keep them from obedience. At the same time, a young person's faith should be observed and it should be tested at least for a season. And probably in that season, it is wise not yet to partake in the ordinances and not yet to partake in membership. So, personal testimony. I was five when I got baptized. I got baptized here. In fact, it was my dad who baptized me. Do I think I was saved when I was baptized? Yeah, I do. But... It would have been far more meaningful to me if I had waited. What's more, when I was baptized, I didn't know what it meant to commit to the church. That those who are baptized by a church, I think, should become members of that church. I don't see that separation. And it'll be clear in the coming weeks. And it's not that you have to be a theologian, but you need to be ready for the responsibilities of what it means to belong to a church. You need to be ready for accountability. So I know, friends, this is a just sensitive, it's a multifaceted subject. And boy, do I, I not want to take it lightly. So I can speak for me, I can speak for my dad, for Don, for Dean. We want the best for the kids here. So we take, take a look at an example. Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon didn't baptize his own sons until they were 18. Until they had both of their feet firmly planted as independent individuals. But Spurgeon also baptized kids in his church as young as nine. So friends, what this means, there's not a hard and fast rule. It's a case-by-case basis. So if you are a parent of a child who is professing faith in Jesus... Or if you profess to believe Jesus yourself but haven't been baptized yet, here are some good questions to keep in mind. Closing things. Number one, how long ago did the profession of faith come and what kind of transformation in your life has there been or in your child's life? Another question. Have you seen yourself or have you seen your child deal with sin suffering, and relationships in a qualitatively different way. Another question. Do you see yourself or your child pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ and communion with God through his word, through prayer, and other means without having to be pushed to do it? Another question. Have members of the church had the opportunity to witness the outworking of genuine faith and God's power in yours or your child's life? Another question. Are you ready to affirm faith and receive, are those members, excuse me, ready to affirm the faith and receive you or your child into membership? Another question. Do you, or if you're a parent, does your child 
have a biblical, clear understanding of the meaning of baptism and the Lord's Supper and what it means for someone to partake rightly of those ordinances, as well as what it means to abuse them. Again, not looking for theological experts, but 1 Corinthians 11, when talking about the Lord's Supper, we should be able, able to examine ourselves. Last question. If you haven't been baptized yet, do you have a kid who wants to be? To what degree are you or your child ready to assume the responsibilities of church membership here, including an informed willingness to participate in church matters and even exercise church discipline when needed? Are you ready for that? So friends, these questions, these questions aren't to communicate the salvation requires more than faith in Jesus. That's what, not what I'm trying to communicate. Or am I trying to communicate that growth, all that growth is immediate, that happens right away? Rather, these questions are to clue us in to evidence of a genuine profession of faith in Christ. So I think we're done with the dessert. I think we've had enough. I'm full. I don't know about you. We've seen how the Bible describes baptism. We've seen the meaning behind it, what it signifies both for an individual and for a church. If we take one last bite, what taste should we taste? It should be sweet. Friends, it should be sweet. We can't think of baptism without thinking of what Jesus has done for us. Just can't. We can't think of baptism without thinking of Jesus' work for us. It should remind us of that sweet fountain, that sweet fountain filled with blood that's drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And we, sinners, plunge beneath that flood and lose all of our guilty stains. Lose all of our guilty stains. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your patience with us. And Lord, as we consider baptism, we consider how it shapes the church and how a local church should practice it. God, we ask that you would give us understanding, that you'd give us wisdom, that you would give us love. God, that you would guide us. And perhaps, God, the thing we pray for the most in light of considering baptism is that you would give us more baptisms. We are bold enough to pray for that. God, we want to see people come to Christ. They will not come unless they hear. So Lord, give us boldness to do this. And as we sow the seed, we ask that you would give the increase for your glory. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.